Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. Jack Morrow here. I watched the two drive in, pretty and open as you please. Sean drove a light blue car I couldn't place, one of the Asian brands, and Jim drove a similar vehicle. Both were unsuitable. Depending on how this turns out, I'm going to have to hook them up with new cars. Cars that don't stand out in the middle of a forest. I had to respect Sean's car at least. It did look like he had thrown it down a mountain and it came out singing. The two of them wandered out of the car without checking their surroundings. Sloppy. I spent some time observing them, their motions, and what they took out of their cars. They were polite to each other. Sean said something and Jim laughed. Good. Neither is on edge, but they should have been. They were, in a good way, waiting for me. Jim was slovenly, dressed in shorts and a Hawaiian t-shirt that would have stood out as tacky on the island chains themselves. I could tell he was well-armed, straps revealed a gun, and he kept a shotgun in easy reach. What's more, I could see bulges in his cargo shorts pockets, promising tricks and fancies that were undoubtedly magical and undoubtedly dangerous. I couldn't tell what they were, I just knew which ones were magic and which ones were granola bars. His ginger hair was tied back in a ponytail. Sean was dressed more neatly, East Coast stuffiness contrasting with Jim's West Coast ease. I could tell that once upon a time the suit had been tailored. While Jim looked like the guy your mom hired to check your dad's evening habits, Sean was the personal bodyguard, paid to look good but never better than his employer. He also had a shotgun, but while Jim hid a lot of his arsenal, Sean open carried. I could see the crossbow across his back, a noticeable bulge at his ankle, and a few other goodies here and there. Sean had short cropped hair and a professional cut. At least the two of them looked ready, well as ready as I could expect them to be. I waited for fifteen minutes, letting things become uncomfortable. Jim laughed at whatever Sean said in a natural way, and no point did his posture change from its ready stance or come closer, as in natural conversation. Sean, for his part, looked uncomfortable in the wild of unpaved roads deep in the heart of the Ozarks, but not in talking to Jim. It was a closed posture, but not a threatened posture. He wasn't nearly as wary as Jim was, and in all the wrong ways. My threat assessment ended. I dropped from the tree canopy and approached. Jim Donovan, Sean Russo, Jack Morrow. I wish we could have met in different circumstances, but I'm an honest man. I wouldn't have met you unless we had to meet. That's fair. 
Sean was smiling for reasons I didn't understand. I shook his hand. I'm just hoping we can get some expense reports filled out. The mileage is killing me. Jim and I shook hands. I'm not going to lie to you. While I am happy you brought your weapons, your cars stick out like a sore thumb. We're going to have to do something about them. I was going to burn them, but Sean said, No problem. I was thinking of the same thing myself. We should cover them in branches. That's not... We're not going to light our cars on fire, Jim said. We wasted two hours covering the cars. I provided them with bug-out bags in case the car gets wrecked. Unismasher was the toughest thing on four wheels, but she wasn't invincible. If we needed to hoof it, I didn't want us carrying dead weight. I loaded them up with some more weapons. A few more handguns, a grenade or two. Jim passed on those, and I didn't blame him. We hopped in the car and drove off. I must admit I was disappointed they wouldn't let me burn the cars out just in case. We drove in silence for about half an hour. Then Sean said, Jack, there's been something that's been bothering me for a while. No. It's important. How do you survive everything that's been thrown at you? I considered it for a long time. The big thing is that nothing is bothered to finish me off when they do get me. God has been protecting me. Personally, I don't want to die. There's a lot of me that doesn't want to quit. There's a lot of people that need to pay. They've built up blood debts and hurt a lot of innocents. They can't get away with it. Sure, there's others who can slay monsters, but how many other people can handle the forces of Ultra Terror like I can? Most of the groups are more concerned about hiding things, or keeping people safe. They don't care until something happens. That's the nature of the beast. A beast we have to kill whenever possible. I want to bring the fight to them. Jim hit me next. I wasn't paying attention to what they were talking about amongst themselves. Alright, I got one. Is this car indestructible by magic? Did you use the Varum Visio? No, this is a normal car, just armored with a powerful engine. Comfortable, right? Yeah, we feel safe. Sean stretched out on the back seat. He didn't bother to put on a seat belt. His loss. Probably the safest I've been all year. He had gotten out some sort of bag of snacks and passed it up to Jim and me. All right, I got one for you, Jack. How do you handle the pain? You've been really messed up over the missions, and I'm pretty sure your ribs are still healing. It's just the nervous system telling my body it's damaged. It's not the same as me. I've got a lot of pain, but that doesn't mean I'm defined by it. Once you learn to accept it as separate from who you are, it stops being so important. When I became blind, I figured I'd heal from it. If I didn't heal... I figured I would overcome it somehow. I'm going to hurt a lot when I'm old, if I get old. Also, the ribs aren't healed, but they're workable. It's not like we can put this off. Jim interrupted Sean. My turn. What happened with the children's hospital? I described it. The children who walked, crawled, floated in the dark basement and the pulsing of a heart so filled with evil it nearly destroyed me soul to body. 
I spent a very long time on the satisfaction of burning the place to the ground. Sean's turn. So, you don't have any curses or spirits, say, or something protecting you against this stuff? Not that I know of. I like to think that there's something drawing trouble to me, but not necessarily protecting or encouraging me to fight it. Mom said she was going to try and break it off, but I haven't found her to talk to her about it. I think it's to do with my birth as a sacrifice. Maybe to Moloch. Jim spoke up this time. All right. Colt or Glock? Jim and I argued all the way to Chicago. Chicago is a wretched city. It's rotting, dying, and raging all in one ugly package. I avoid Chicago except on the few times I had to go to the paranormal Pinkerton HQ when I was younger. After the paranormal Pinkertons adopted the internet and cell phones, I didn't have any reason to go there. The researchers could have your requests back to you as fast as it took them to digitize the contents of the books and journals of other paranormal Pinkertons. It took them a long time to put it all up, but they did. It was pretty useful. Want to know how to handle a Medusa? Or a Chupacabra? Or an evil slime? Or a drake? There's a bunch of stuff out there, and while I've been lucky enough to handle things, there are some things even a well-armed man can't go head-to-head -head with. Studying the works of my elders and peers gave me an edge over a lot of foes it shouldn't have. Eventually, I started to develop my own techniques based on their teachings and the training with the old Shawnee. I might act like a lone wolf, but I spent the boring years of my childhood reading as much of this stuff as I could. Monster hunting is an art. You study and then you practice. It's never perfect, but any fight you win is a good fight. Even with the occasional and rather mysterious archive fire, the vast majority of information remained. Even now, I could pull up the archives on my cell phone's internet. I didn't need it like when I was a kid. You could only read about a guy shooting a werewolf so many times before you'd get bored and want to experience it for yourself. HQ was stationed in one of the southern districts, far from crime, once, and deep in a commercial district so generic, so uninteresting that not a single person looked up into the sky or at the many glass-paneled buildings around them. I did not blame them. The parking lot was empty, filled with trash and potholed to hell. I parked the car a few streets down. The doors were locked and chained. No one had bothered to properly rob the place. We broke through. The main foyer was nothing but a basic and generic set of desks and elevators. The chair was turned over and something had burned out the computers. We searched the three floors in the archives. Nothing. No one. The cubicles were empty. Sometimes a phone would ring. It would echo no matter what floor we were on, but always after three rings it would get quiet again. We never could answer it. It was so quiet that we could feel it, like putting out a hand into darkness and feeling shadows, but never touching anything. The whole place was empty of people and life. Most of the files were gone. Most of the personnel information was gone. Some of it remained worthless things about payments made to and from defunct companies or men I knew were dead and gone. There were even places where posters had been. I could imagine the hang-in-there kitten hang-ups. I wandered through offices where I knew old men had sat, 
sending their orders to control. They received contracts from many different sources, paying for goods and services for the long coats and guns, running the day-to-day -day business. I remember the call that had made me a full Pinkerton so many years ago, while I sat in Control's chair, spinning idly. It was harder than I thought it would be. The whole office echoed because it was empty, but I could see the outlines where cabinets and bookcases had been a year ago, unmoved since they built this soulless place back in the 80s. They had even taken her phone. There was more society then. The golden age embers were still glowing in the bonfire of America. A part of me wished I had been a part of it. I felt the large oak desks heft. I ran my fingers over grooves and discolorations, where control must have rested her hands while typing. I could see marks from strange contraptions, computers, and the desk kipple that entrenched office types gather around them. I searched the desk, running my fingers over every inch. The key find was a picture stashed between the slats of the desk drawers, in a line where the glue and nails hadn't quite aligned, creating a narrow pocket large enough for a single picture. A picture of control, well, the old one, was in the middle of a bunch of office types, wounded paranormal Pinkertons who left the field but not the work. There were some active agents I saw, old Tom before he got his eye patch, Holt Lucari who sported an 80s appropriate mullet, Garfield, and a bunch of others I didn't know ranging the back. Some even smiled. The other find was a shattered lens buried deep in the discolored carpet. Sean and Jim found a working computer and were logging in to find anything that could give us a hint. I left the picture in Lynn's shards with Jim. I expected him to have an answer and he promised to try. I wandered off down into the archives. There had been a server room down there, but it was empty, just like the rest of them. I didn't mourn it. Like I said earlier, much had been digitized. There was, however, one secret I kept for myself. Though I didn't know what my mother did for the paranormal Pinkertons, she did tell me a few little things. Things to take care of if something should happen. I wouldn't care if something hadn't happened. It might be an odd idea, since I can't imagine not working for the paranormal Pinkertons. If there were others to follow to kill for, I'd think I'd be a happier man. Retreat back to Missouri, where no one goes and no one cares, killing monsters until I'm called home. Maybe find a nice girl. Maybe have some kids. Just like a normal person. I hit the brickwork in an appropriate musical order. It wasn't shaving a haircut two bits, but something classical. Wagner, maybe. The brickwork cracked and fell back, rolling on well-greased tracks. I walked in. Cold water reached to my knees and soaked my boots immediately. The water prevented the whole thing from getting too quiet. Tiny waves slapped against far walls, reminding me of cracked ice rather than water crashing against brick. Pillars held up the ceiling at uneven intervals. Various runes and marks were written on them. Supposedly, they could resist scrying and other magical muck, but I didn't believe all of it. There is no protection from the dark using dark arts. As I went further into the dark, feeling the pillars and using up my matches, I heard the water whisper and play over itself as if disturbed. Water has sounds to it, even when it flows with and over itself, even though I was searching for anything left behind by the raiders. Sometimes washed-out notes floated in the water, but never had anything on them. I kept what I could. 
I stopped at the stairs that led down deeper. I wasn't going to go diving, not yet. But I saw deep, then close, then in every place, hands, arms, legs, and feet at first. Then whole bodies rolling in the deep like whales, sharks, and dolphins. People. A few I recognized from the picture, blank faces with small smiles, others with frowns. Their eyes were blank, pupils extended to the max, like the eyes of an addict in the throes of their favorite drug. I had not joined the picnics and other gatherings, nor had any been announced going into September of 2020. These people were in their work clothes, young to old. I did not see control among them. There was a strange togetherness with them. They were of one mind, one heart, as if, despite falling apart in society above, all the faster through the internet and all the myriad advances in communication, they were still together. If I joined them, I would be like them, and I would never have to worry about anything. I'd be cared for by the others and could care for them in turn. Come and join, Jack Morrow, said a voice. Three young women breached the surface, heads bobbing. They were in the prime of life, not older than thirty. Their clothing was disheveled and waterlogged. You always were given to work, 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 and never play, like winter without Yule. Should this be your reward, that from a babe you had been given little but misery, and promises you cannot touch until you die? Come and swim with us. We will love you. You will be accepted. I found myself taking one step down into the water. I did not stop it. We will fold around you and you will be like us. No cares will worry you. None of the strange and scary things you have seen will come to bother you. In our care... Who can attack a legion that has closed its ranks around its beloved? There are none. Now I heard a small voice in my heart. I was three steps away from the women. I stopped to listen, for the women did not speak while it whispered to me. You were not made to give to pleasure. They lie to you. Look on the swimmers. See their eyes. Their spirits have been cast out and replaced by their own choices. Pleasure is not the end of man, and who knows what tomorrow will bring for you. Jack, come down, said the woman. Three more steps until the water is over your head, and we can embrace you. Hardship no more but community, but love. It is not love they offer, but emptiness. They are a pit that will never be filled. A fire that can never light. Step back and away. Demons tell only enough truth as it is convenient for them. Life is not about suffering or thankless service. It is the pursuit of the good, the beautiful, and the true, in defiance to the princes of the world. Run, Jack Morrow. Flee for your life and soul. The call resonated within my heart. I felt my veins. They were full of ice and sludge, pulling me down, playing on my flesh. They surrounded my heart with a siege of thorny vines and sent tendrils into my very core. My mind began to freeze and shatter under its own weight. I lost thought and nearly fell on my face. 
I reacted with terror. I knew of these people, but I didn't know these people. They weren't my friends. They accepted something that lied to them and gave them false dreams. They were now little less than animals, rolling and frolicking in the deeps, never to be discovered again. What kept them alive without breath I could not know, but I guessed. I thrashed and ran up the stairs, but before I could reach the edge, hands grabbed me front and back, pulling me forward and backward. I couldn't hear anything except my heart beating faster and faster. I pushed forward, letting the two sets of hands pull me up and out. When my feet reached solid land, I blacked out. Jack! Jack, can you hear us? Sean gave me a slap across the face. I gasped with renewed breath. Thank God. Jack, what was that? Jim spoke. He was behind me, stomping on a concrete surface. I coughed. Where's all the water? People. What water? We followed you down here, only to see you sinking through the floor. When you turned and ran, we pulled you up. Where Were there people here? Sean was tapping the ground with his ring, checking for whatever strange thing had tried to pull me into the deep. Jim pulled out a shining stone. People have died here. I don't dare look at this place with the Verovizio. Around us were the looted remains of shelves, filing cabinets, and storage boxes. There were more than a few bloodstains, but no bodies. At points there were clear, perfectly clean silhouettes in the concrete. Jim consulted his stone again. We're leaving. The picture you found was the clue. It's a possession of control that was more than just a picture. It's a keepsake with enough heart in it to lead to control. I can track the lines with the Verum Visio. They lead southwest. The computers? Nothing, but we took a hard drive that hadn't been fully erased. I know a guy. Sean helped me up. I was unsteady, but I could walk. You can't just go on your own like that, Jack. We're a team. Yeah. The two of them shared a look I didn't much like. The three of us entered my car, and I drove us out according to Jim's directions. Jack Morrow out. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio and licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Ben Wheeler, who also edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Ken Dickinson is our audio editor. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SuperversiveSF.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, support us on Patreon, or email us at PinkertonsGhosts at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our unauthorized episodes as well. Thank you for listening. <laughs>